You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith and Other Oddity, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and try to get it out on the internet um, with uh, varying <laughs> levels of success. <laughs> so, um, oh, Those you, technology gremlins have been getting us lately. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had some, uh, some technical issues lately. Last week, if you were listening, you know, Emily had to jump off real quick and I had to wrap up the show awkwardly by myself. Um, <laughs> but, I didn't even jump off, I got shoved off. Like. Well, Fair enough, fair enough. So um, basically, uh, just I know some of y'all are probably curious what happened. Uh, Emily's computer got dropped a few months ago, and so it's one of the, the ports quit working. We're on MacBook uh, Pros here, so the ones that just have the, the two Thunderbolt ports, mm-hmm. one of those quit working so she can either charge the computer or connect the audio interface. And for a few months, that had been working fine. We would just not do video on our Skype. That would conserve enough battery mm-hmm. power to get us through a show. And then last week, I guess, um, you had a system update, which didn't yeah. let that keep happening. So um, we, we <laughs> thought we were going to have to buy her a new computer. We found a nice temporary workaround um, that will allow her to be plugged in while recording until we can get a new computer for her. Um, so that should be, you know, we should be good for now, but I just want to let everyone know, I, I think we've got it at least temporary, <laughs> temporarily nailed down. We shouldn't have to uh, jump off in the middle of a show, not for technology reasons anymore. Um, hopefully our video transfer system has decided it's going to behave so we can get our YouTube videos up on time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I do apologize for any inconvenience, uh, for anybody looking forward to that stuff. Um, we're glad you're back with us now, and hopefully <laughs> we can get ourselves together and, and get you a quality show every week that ends um, roughly when we expect it to. Um, but we're like the whole engine that could. We just keep like finding new ways to work around these weird problems that you only have whenever you're doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. In yeah, and, rural Oklahoma. Yes, and recording <laughs> remotely uh, doesn't really help that. I mean, that's... Definitely ups my time on editing. <laughs> it take, takes a little more, uh, you know, cut and paste and things together, get it to, to look right and sound right. Um, but it's working out pretty good. Um, I know, Emily, you probably enjoyed not doing all the travel. Um, I don't have time to travel anymore. That's, well, that's why that's, we're that's, doing that's this. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Maybe you do miss it, the time alone in the car. Yes, please. Let's not. Talk. I guess we'll not get too far into that. But that being that being said, um, we had uh, last week. We were in Second Samuel, still in. Is it eighteen? Uh, well, you know, it'd help if I opened up to Second Samuel because um, I was yeah. in First Samuel. Uh, yes, there was, there was so, lots lots of running. Um, Absalom had just been killed. We we're in the middle mm-hmm. of a uh, uh, telling Joab, hey, I want to go tell David the good news, and Ahimaaz is saying, David's not going to think this is good news, and 
you know, basically implying, hey, the last person to tell him something like this got killed. Then we have, he says, let the Kushite go ahead and, and do that for us instead. Uh, you know, let him test the waters, see how David's Send doing. Send the new guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then we have this really intense scene, and this is just to get everyone caught up to where we were. So we have this really intense scene where uh, the the Kushite is, or no, was it Himaaz? Was he running first, or was it the Kushite first? Himaaz outran the outran Kushite because the, the Kushite goes through the fords that are harder to run through. Right, that's and right. Himaaz, yeah, went through the plains of Jordan, which were easier to run. Yeah, I got distracted uh, and did not read back through it this morning. Um, but so the the watchman says he sees a person running, and David says, "Well, if it's one, it's good news." Um, let him come, and then all of a sudden, there's another runner, and so now we're really worried about Himaaz again. Like, uh oh, <laughs> now it's two people. Does this still mean it's good news? Does he get to make it to the gate? And then he makes it to the gate, and then he delivers the news to David, and you're going, somebody's gonna die. Uh, is right. is is David gonna kill this guy when he hears that his son is dead? Um, which is an important question to be answered, I think. Um, but the way it's drawn out there, it's it really ratchets up the tension, um, and it only gets uh, released really whenever you get to David's reaction um, that it's he doesn't kill the uh, the young man Ahimaaz or the Cushite, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a surprise if you've been reading all the other chapters and remembering what happened. So um, again, which is we'll, why it's important to read in context. Ex- yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's important <laughs> to read the whole book. Remember what's going on not just take it one tiny story at a time, not just take the chunks you like at, at one time, because whenever you get to looking at, at, at how that's put together and how it mirrors those other instances, you go, oh man, this is a really intense story. And mm-hmm. it, it really shows how the, the writer uses that tension to, to draw you into what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And, and then he really, I mean, I mean, you get to it. I mean, you, it, it really is drawing you in and you're like, someone's going to die. Who's going to die? And it's like getting you going now pay attention because then what you have, we have Jesus, uh, David is this like precursor to Jesus, which I might be getting ahead of you. <laughs> he weeps over the death of his son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah. oh, this you now really pay attention. Watch what the king does when he's doing the right thing. Might be a little late for David at this point, you know, to be doing the right thing. But when he's doing the right thing, he's not happy when someone dies. So precisely, I think, I think that's. Is that a good recap? Yeah, that can, it's kind of a recap, and it kind of gets us into a little bit where we're going because we when we left off, I think we were right at that spot where Ahimaaz had shown up, and he had said to David, "Shalom." You know, nothing's broken, nothing's missing. And of course, in David's house, everything's broken, everything's missing. He's not even in his home anymore. Right. Yeah, I I just kind of think Ahimaaz may have not had a really strong grasp on the situation um, based on that statement. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, because as far as David the king... What Ahimaaz comes and tells him, it, it is the good news, it is the gospel, it is shalom, is being returned to the kingdom, but not as the individual. The individual is still broken, the individual has still suffered great loss. So who are we talking to here? David the, the father or David the king? 
And this might be why we have two messengers, because the the news has to be delivered to two different parts of David. And the writer may very well be driving that point home that David, the king and David, the, the, the father, they're going to receive the same messages but the, there's two different outcomes with how that message is received because father's heart is broken. The king's heart should be relieved. And so this is leaving uh, David in quite the predicament personally because what, what's more important, uh, the king's reaction or the father's reaction? And the thing was, we got to go back and remember that moment when Absalom was returned from exile. Remember, Absalom had been sent away after mm-hmm. the death of Amnon, or he had at least gone away. And so when he returned and David kissed him, it wasn't the father who kissed him. It was the king who kissed him. And it was a political move. It wasn't a a return to the family. And there was still that division within the family, which I think is what kind of pushed Absalom over the edge in how he responds to his father. Because what if David's reception when Absalom came back home had been different? And so the writer immediately tells us in verse 29 who's responding to the news that Ahimezah brings to him. And the king says, is it well with the young man Absalom? So David, he doesn't care about the, the, um, the battle or anything. And David actually says, is it shalom with Absalom? That's who he cares about. Ahimezah is saying it's shalom with David. David says, is it shalom with Absalom? So, um, you know, he, he wants to know about his son. That's all he cares about. And Ahimaaz uh, actually answers, when Joab sent the king's serv- king servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was or what it is. So we, we've got some question here because did Ahimaaz lose his nerve? Did he, did he really not know that Absalom was dead? Now the sages argue that he, that this is, he really didn't know. And so he was not going to report something that he had not verified himself. But we know that Joab in a previous verse had said, hey, this is not good news. Why? Because the king's son is dead. So there's really no excuse and there's really no way to say that Ahimaaz did not know that the king's son was dead. He had to have known if he'd actually had the conversation with Joab. So we think maybe at this point, he was getting a little bit of a clue that Joab was correct to be worried about... Um, David's reaction. Now, um, the the Hebrew in this verse actually um, is more telling than the English because the English, you know, it reads, you know, very smoothly. We follow very nicely through the the progression, but the Hebrew, as Alter notes, is very kind of jumbled. He actually says that Ahimaaz starts babbling, so it's this idea of of nerves taking over and he doesn't know what to say he's being put on <laughs> i just on realized what i walked into <laughs> yeah it, it, it's like oh joab actually knew what he was talking about and um i need to figure out a way to get out of this oh look there's a cushion you know that's kind of what it comes down to so verse 30 says and the king says turn aside and stay here so he, so he stood aside and stood still and you i mean you can almost see it that, you know, the person who's standing at the side of the room waiting to know if they're going to be in trouble or not, the kid, you know, trying not to fidget. I mean, this is a young man. We already know this from previous verses. This is the son of Zadok, the priest. He's, he is, um, he's the runner. He's not the warrior. And so, you know, you kind of get this, oh, crap moment going on here in this, this 
tension of the court of what's going on because David isn't behaving like the king. He's not even behaving like the warrior. And what do they do with David the father? Because this isn't a guy that everybody knew. You know, this is a new guy for his warriors to encounter. So, you know, David doesn't try to learn any more from him. He, he just says, you know, just, just stand over there. And verse 31 says, and behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news. Again, that word euangelion in the uh, Septuagint for my Lord, the King. So note, it's good news for my Lord, my King, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So in a lot of respects, the Cushite kind of repeats what Ahimaaz says if we just look at the surface level, and we're going to get into the distinctions in what they said. So it's interesting to note that the Cushite calls David, my Lord and King. And remember, we had that discussion earlier, who was the Cushite? Is he an Israelite who um, resembled a Cushite? Is he a Cushite who moved to Israel and became a part of the covenant community? We've had that happen throughout the book of Judges, throughout Samuel. People who say, I want to live with the Israelites. but he also acknowledges the deliverance of Yahweh anytime, again, Lord, all capital letters in your Bible, that's the, the Tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav heh So we have, again, it, it, God has delivered, the God of Israel, the God from the burning bush, he's delivered you. And so it might give us a little bit more insight into this guy. You know, if he's willing to say these words and give God the credit and willing to acknowledge David as king, that might be a little telling, uh, or he could be playing politics. It kind of just depends on how cynical you want to be with this. So, mm-hmm. so David um, repeats the question. Verse 32, the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord and king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. So the Cushite doesn't hesitate to answer but he never specifically calls Absalom David's son. He kind of uh, ignores that relationship. And he even utters a curse. May it be to those. I mean, this is the idea that he wants the worst punishment to come against David's enemies. And that's being conveyed as words. And this is the reason why when David responds, David's, even though he didn't get direct, a direct answer to his questions, he knows what the intent is. And so this leads us to a couple of questions about the Cushite here, because either he's not aware of David's command, and this is the reason why he he has no problem saying this, or he was unaware uh, of the other times that David had killed the messenger. So he, because he, he speaks as if he expects David to be excited. He expects David to share his viewpoint and his perspective on the event. Uh, he's happy about Absalom's death. This means that his homeland, the place where he dwells and the place where he you know, probably has a family and raises crops and has herds, it's safe now. It's secure. There's not going to be a civil war. He's not going to have to put his life at risk in defense of, some, you know, of David being uh, attacked by his son or a rebel king. So the Cushite's happy about this. This, is, this really is good news for him. And David's reaction was not uh, as Joe Beard, Joab Beard. Um, because, and maybe it's possible that 
David doesn't hold the, the Kushite directly responsible. It's possible that he realizes, hey, this guy is, maybe he is a servant of Joab. We've had that suggested by the, the fact that the um, Kushite bowed to Joab. Maybe he is a servant that's been suggested by different rabbis. Um, maybe it's because the warrior king, David, realized that there is only one way this could end. There, there was no other way it could play out. The, the rebel king has to die, even if it was his son. And so, you know, there's a couple of reasons why David may, have, may not have had that harsh reaction that he had with the other guys who said, hey, your enemy's dead. But I actually like another option. Uh, I heard this from uh, Rabbi Silva from Drisha. I've mentioned them before. Uh, great uh, series on Samuel there. Uh, but like I said, the Hebrew hides something. So if you go back to the Hebrew and you look at what Ahimaaz says to David, he says, God has delivered. So this is a personal mention. This is a personal address to David. It's saying God has shown you kindness. God ha has specifically delivered you. There, there's no uh, mention of the kingship. There's no mention of the throne. It, it, it's David, the individual, has been delivered. Uh, the idea here is, uh, from a Hebrew word, it, it is shut up, walled off, closed off, so that there's no way that evil can penetrate and get to the person. And um, so this is what Ahimaaz comes to David with. It's that very personalized message. You, the individual, you, the man, have been delivered. The Cushite delivers a slightly different message. And it's not reflected in the ESV. Again, I want to kick the ESV translators because they're not consistent when they should be and inconsistent when they shouldn't be. Um, Alter actually translates this much closer to the Masoretic. And it says, the Lord has done justice. So whenever it has done you justice. And the word in the verse is mishpat. I'm sorry, shofat, not mishpat, shofat. And it translates to judge. Deborah was a judge. Uh, Samuel judged Israel. It's the idea of executing just, justice. It's not just this idea that just as, as justice is an abstract. It's that justice has literally happened. It's been carried out. And so the Cushite says justice has been done. Ahimaaz says compassion has been given. So you, you see the difference in the two, two messages. One is delivered to the individual. One is delivered to the king who governs hmm. over a nation. Uh, yeah, I, it, and those are the little things that make Hebrew so much, so much fun. And so we want to make sure that we, we see these things in the messages because, again, who is going to respond? Is it going to be David the father or is it going to be David the king? Because who responds is going to dictate the response. And can the two coexist within one person? Right. And that's a huge question. Uh, and I think we're going to have it answered here in a minute. Uh, because the Cushite message is only good news for the king. It's not good news for the father. And that's, like I said, the, really the crux of David's entire story. Who is he going to be? Is he David or, or David the king? Or is he David the man? And whose concerns are going to to win out. So what we need to remember about kingship, especially when we're talking about ancient kingship, or even I think even today, maybe to a lesser extent, 
personal wants and desires don't play a part. They're, they're, they're not put above the obligations of the crown. When you are ruling a country, the needs of the country come first. The individual is secondary if it's allowed to play on the stage at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so what obligations do, does David the king have in this matter? Uh, you know, if you examine David's life, every problem he ever has begins with when he forgets who he is. When he sets aside his identity as God's anointed king and he starts behaving as a man without a Lord and master. Um, now, I think right there we have something, uh, a, a great teaching point that would make for a great servant because, uh, uh, not servant, sermon. Um, because when do we get in trouble? I mean, I would say 98% of the problems I've caused myself has been whenever I've forgotten who I am as a child of God and to behave appropriately. And probably all the problems I've caused other people or a good portion of the problems I've caused other people is when I've forgotten who I am and not behaved appropriately. So, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, well, and this is the thing, David when he remembers who he is, that he's wholly dependent on the will and the grace and the love, mercy, all these attributes of God, when he remembers these things, he is dynamic. He's passionate. He's daring. He's daring for the right reasons. When he forgets, he's sitting on a rooftop. He's watching women bathe. He, you know, this is not a good guy. It's only whenever he's clinging to his identity in Christ that he acts and behaves appropriately. Well, I don't think he would cling to his identity in Christ being David. Um, but his identity as as a, you know, as the king of Israel. <laughs> as God's anointed. As God's as anointed. The foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know what you meant, but it, it was just a little anachronistic. Um, it, it is. As well, far you know. as what David, I mean... As far as as far as what David would be able to understand, and what you know the the writers of of, of Samuel would be able to understand and convey, and, right? And you know we we can look we can project backwards if we want to, but we have to be careful when we do that. Because okay, fine. I'm, I'm just I'm not. I mean, I understood what you meant. Um, right. Well, and, and we we understand that that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. I mean, that's that's. Um, he was there all along. He didn't arrive in Matthew. But right. at the same time, yes, he, Jesus, David would not have had the understanding of Jesus' life and ministry. Absolutely. That, that would have been completely uh, off his radar. Uh, so now that you caught me in a foible, we'll move on to the next I, Well, verse. I figured we, I, I would, I, we just get it corrected now as opposed to getting letters and complaints, right? This is true. This is very true. I might as well. I'll eat my little crow. So verse 33, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he wept, as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so if there is ever any indication that David is totally, op- you know, you need some kind of evidence. He is operating as a father at this point in time. The king is gone. The warrior's gone. He is 100% the dad who's grieving the dead son. Uh, he's literally trembling with emotion, we find out. And the, the rabbis claim that the reason why David responds this way is because David realized he's, he is responsible. He is 100% responsible for what Absalom's done. And now, 
you got to be a little careful there with that, with that, that kind of language, because yes, David, David set the scene. If David had not sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and David had actually taken care of Tamar, if David had responded in kind to, to Amnon the way he should have fulfilling the law, if he had accepted Absalom back from exile with open arms, uh, there, there's so many points along the way that David could have changed this trajectory, but he never did. And it's not until Absalom's death that he, he begins to actually realize, oh, wait a minute, there, there's something going on here. Now, this does not negate Absalom's um, part and responsibility in this. I mean, Absalom absolutely made choices in this all the way along. And so you kind of have to wonder, uh, you know, where that, where is that line between David's responsibility and Absalom's responsibility? Because Nathan the prophet, uh, yeah, Nathan the prophet had, had uh, foreseen this coming, that there was going to be things happen within David's own house mm-hmm. that were going to happen. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't think anyone can ever just go, oh, the devil made me do it, or God made me do it, or it was predetermined, predestined, whatever, you know, I, I don't think we can use that as a get out of jail free card. Uh, we are still absolutely responsible for what we do. So I think we need to be a little bit careful with the idea that David's weeping here because he understands he is the one responsible. Um, I, I think that might take it a bit too far. And um, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just want to be, you know, offer that caution there. So, you know, David is, is very human. And I think that's, one of the things we are seeing in this passage. And, you know, I also want to be careful that we don't try to read too much into David's um, grieving here or even any of his responses, because when we talk about types and foreshadowing, there are limitations. And the, the analogy will break down at some point. But I think when we read this story and we have these, these glimmers and the, this peek into a reality we often forget, and that is that God does grieve the lost son, as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, God is also the king who knows that justice has to be enacted, that sin doesn't get to go unpunished or unabsolved. It has to be, um, it has to be addressed. And what's interesting to me is God's solution is almost identical with the one that David offers up here. Oh, that I had died instead of you. Mm-hmm. And so you have that 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 counterpoint. I mean, now of course, David's um, David's death would have resulted in nothing of benefit for Absalom, other than evil would reign. And that's that's the really great thing about the distinction here. If David had died, then Absalom, who had proven to be a worse sinner than his father, who was more violent than his father, would have reigned over Israel, and who knows where that would have ended up, where God's death through the incarnate Christ actually becomes the method through which evil is defeated. Right. So you have that, that reversal here that I really do, do love. And, you know, it's God's way that bridges that divide between the father's heart and the king. God can have both. God can be both the father who grieved and he can also offer the way of reconciliation where David and his human frailty and his, his limitations, how does he do that? How do you thread that needle when you've got a son who has 
literally come in and raped 10 of your wives ten, and taken over your city. At, what can you do that's severe enough without causing his death? What, what can you do to, to make these, um, repair this relationship short of death? I mean, I, anything that David would have tried to do to reconcile with Absalom would have looked like mercy and weakness and, you know, it, it, or favoritism. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would not have worked within a human construct. And so this is the reason why what God is doing through Christ is so crazy, because it only works with God. And, right. beca- and it only works with God because he's the only one who can bring life from death. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and something too you mentioned earlier, and this is just kind of a just kind of a theological point, is you you talked about um, you know, we we can't God not letting sin go unpunished or or not or ending un- this 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 progression. That's that's one of the things that, you know, when we look at, you know, we, you know, that's the, the age old question, well, why doesn't God just save everyone? Or, you know, why why do people have to die? Why does there have to be uh you know, a, a theology of hell, which I'm still working out what that right. even looks like. I mean, there's, there's so many questions and I, I mean, I don't spend a ton of time on it, um, partly cause it's depressing. Right. Um, but, but I think when we, when we don't understand that, <clears throat> excuse me, that question, I, I think when that question is posed, we're not really understanding oftentimes our role in the universe for one, um, that we mm-hmm. are supposed to be working with God and that we do have some influence on how the universe gets built and fleshed out mm-hmm. and, and moved. And we do that through moral action. Mm-hmm. And so when God punishes sin, he does that because he decided, Hey, the world you're building, uh, that's a little farther than I want to <laughs> send humanity into right now. You know, it, I don't want you to continue to create a world that, that that's that evil. Um, right. And, and so we, you know, because as far as I can tell, it's like the earth's still kind of in process. <laughs> I mean, we're, it's, and it's, it's kind of mind boggling, but it is, it's, it's God says, okay, you, God's given the earth over to man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think and there's a verse in this... Psalms, uh, the, the heavens are the Lord's, the earth he has given over to man. And we, we fail to realize um, what, Oh, I just have to look it up. I'm I, I, yeah, I'd have to look up the exact reference, and I'm, I'm probably misquoting. But it's um, there's there's this idea that we this this separation. We just kind of too often want to play around like we're just victims of reality. When re in in reality, reality is kind of a victim of our behavior and the way mm-hmm. it plays out, and and the way it influences people. And so, why does God punish sin? Why does He not save everyone? Because he doesn't want to reward us for continuing to build a, a place that's evil, uh, and so well, that's and, and and we have to believe in good and evil. Otherwise, it all just falls apart. And you can't say there's no one who believes there is no evil. Um, well, you can say it all you want, I guess, but you'll be wrong. But um, say whatever you want. But I, I just wanted to throw that out there because you mentioned that, uh, and it kind of reminded me of that the whole schema. <laughs> Well, and I think we need to remember, too, that sin causes harm. And I, I think sometimes we forget that. And even if it's a sin that we think, oh, well, this isn't really hurting anyone, within the biblical framework, 
sin always causes damage. And so sin has to be stopped in order to keep from inflicting more damage on other people and the environment around us. It damages the earth. We have to remember the very first sin actually resulted in the earth, Mm -hmm. the ground being cursed. So that's our prototype. That's the very first thing that we need to understand about sin is it causes actual damage. So whenever we're talking about stopping it, we aren't talking about stopping someone from, you know, stealing a piece of bubble gum. We're talking about stopping someone from inflicting damage in this reality. And this is the reason why sin has to be addressed because we've been given the ability to make decisions that actually impact the world and the environment and not just like, you know, trees and earth and, you know, Green Day kind of environment, but the, the environment, the, the emotional, moral, spiritual, mental places we inhabit. So I think we forget that sometimes. And we think that sin is all about, oh, well, it's, it's just about me. And that's how narcissistic we are. Sin is just something that is about me. And no, that's never what the Bible presents. It is a communal, um, it's a communal travesty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway. And that's, that's Psalm 115, 16, by the way. It's the, the earth is, uh, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So, so that's, I like that it. one. It's, it's brings a lot of interesting theology about. <laughs> well, I mean, it's exactly, I mean, it's Genesis 1 and 2, you know, here, take this, work it, tend it, care for me, and care, care for it for me. Yeah. So, oh. but now we move into uh, chapter 19, and the story continues, and the, the writer reintroduces Joab. Now, we need to remember Joab is David's loyal general. He's the protector. He's the man who will kill for David without question. When David wanted Uriah dead, all he had to do was send a note, hey, kill this dude. Joab carries it out. No questions asked. We don't even know if Joab realizes what David was trying to accomplish in that act. Joab doesn't care. His king wanted it. He did it. And this is what makes the story of Absalom so very interesting. So um, we got to remember, too, that Joab is somebody who goes way out of his way to make sure that Jay, uh, David gets all the glory and praise possible. Remember back at Rabbah, whenever the city was getting ready to fall, David was at home trying to figure out, figure out how to cover up what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And Joab sent for David and said, you know, basically get out here so the credit doesn't go to me. The, the credit for taking the city needs to go to you. And, you know, this is the guy who will risk David's wrath when it comes to protecting David's reputation and even protecting David from himself. Remember mm-hmm. back at the beginning of Second Samuel when David accepted Abner's offer to come join him, and Joab said, nope, not happening. This guy's a spy. He's trying to get in close to you. He's trying to cause damage. We got to take him out. So Joab is... He's the guy you want on your side, okay? If if you were ever going to be in a ruling position, you want so Joab by your side because he's going to be watching your back big time. And so I And now and now we're going to illustrate that you might not actually want him, but you might need him. <laughs> if you're smart, you want him. But yes, I think every one of us needs a friend like Joab at some point in our life. Um 
So I think he's a, he's kind of an interesting person. I actually, I really like him because he's just a get it done kind of person. And I like get it done kind of people because I'm not one. So anyway, verse one, it was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Verse two, so the victory of the day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day that the king was grieving for his son. Verse three. And the people stole into the city that day as the people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So I put all those verses together because I think together they give you a better grasp of what's happening. This, this is the day of victory. The people are supposed to be celebrating. Remember back when David had gone out and fought the Philistines when Saul was, was king. The women were singing and dancing in the streets. Everybody's greeting the soldiers as they come home. The king is supposed to be there at the gate you know, hearing about all of the great, you know, fights and battles that his warriors have won, the heroic deeds that each of them uh, have performed in this particular war, David's nowhere to be found. He, he's, he's just gone. And so somebody who, who's pretty smart goes to Joab and go, hey, you, you need to know what's happening with the king. Mm-hmm. You need to be the one to hear what's going on because this is what's wrong. And so, um, the problem with all of this is where the people should have come in with a parade. Now they're, they're acting like they lost. Remember that everyone went to their own home. They returned to their own tent. We've heard that phrase before. It's the idea of, of you know, running away from battle. So instead of marching home in a parade, proud and exuberant, they're, they're sneaking home. Uh, they're, they're returning as people who've been defeated. And so... When Joab gets back, man, they're like, okay, this is the guy to handle the king when he's in this mood. We don't trust anyone else to do it. It's basically what I think is going on here. Verse four, the (laughs) the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, covering one's face, we've already talked about this. This is a sign of mourning. We saw it with Tamar after Amnon had raped her and threw her in the street. We saw it with David whenever he was fleeing from Jerusalem when Absalom evaded. Um, he, he mourns the death of his son, just like he mourned the loss of Jerusalem. And David's words really reveal the depth of his grief. Because when you remember back when Saul and Jonathan died, he composed this amazing eulogy. It's one of the, the more highly praised pieces of poetry in all of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, when, Beth, when the son he had with Bathsheba died, uh, he waxed all philosophical about death and the purpose of death. And now he is just reduced to crying out basically two words in Hebrew, my son, my son. There's, there's no careful consideration. There's no philosophical you know, pondering. There, there's not even poetry. Mm-hmm. It, it's just my son. And so this is this gut-wrenching grief that's just robbed him of any perspective and um, any kind of shred of who he was and, you know, forget proper etiquette. It's out the window. So verse five, then Joab came to the house to the king and says, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have to this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. So Joab is telling David what only a friend who's been with you a really long time gets to say to you. Only somebody who's walked with you through just the, the valleys of hell can can 
say these sorts of things without you just blowing up on them. And so this is kind of, you know, the, the slap in the face that David needs to, to come out of his hysteria. And Joab is reminding him of his responsibility. A king does not have the luxury of personal grief. It doesn't matter how close the person who died is. Personal grief and sorrow is something that only the commoner gets to have. And his duty is to show the people that he is happy that they won, that he wants to join them in the celebration. They get to go back to their homes. They get to reclaim mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. Absalom had taken from them. And so David has allowed Absalom to totally distract him from who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing. And Job's basically saying, dude, get it together. Act like the king you're supposed to be. Right. And it's very telling too the 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 list that that uh joab gives he says you know david should be shouldn't be mourning because the servants you know the, when we talk about the servants he's talking about the soldiers guys who had literally risked their lives to make sure that david could reclaim the the um the throne the sons and daughters the rest of david's sons and daughters from everything we can tell had remained loyal they had probably fled with David. Why? Because under the, the dictates of this culture and time, Absalom would have gone in and killed his other siblings to make sure that none of them could try to take the throne from him. So these children, David's other kids, were literally in danger of dying with, under Absalom's rule. The wives and the concubines. Well, I mean, really, do we need to explain this one? Ten of the concubines who were the same as wives, they just didn't have that, that premarital agreement. Right. That they had been raped in public. Now, if David would allow that to happen to those ten, do you think the other ones at home felt any safer or more secure knowing that, they, that David allowed this to occur? Right. And also, custom would have dictated that had Absalom taken the throne, he also would have taken the rest of David's wives into his own harem. Uh, now, whether or not that really meant they had a real marriage or they were just going to be cloistered away until they died alone, that's, that uh, kind of varied according to circumstance. But, but Joab's saying, you know, everyone that you're supposed to defend, you, you basically told them that you don't care. You, you would rather mourn the guy who, who did all these horrible things than to, to celebrate the fact that the ones who love you are safe. And we, but we've seen this before. We, we shouldn't be too surprised because David has this, this, this record of misplaced compassion. Because remember back um, with Hey Noon, whenever we, we started talking about the story of Rabbah, when, when Joab was trying to uh, capture Rabbah, that all started because David had sent messengers. Why? To, to, console Hanun, the son of Nakash, mm -hmm. and he had, um, you know, shaved half their beard, cut off half their clothes. Amnon, uh, who had raped his own sister, David's daughter, David showed compassion to. He shouldn't have. Ziba, and we're going to find out, you know, Ziba was the one who was um, put in charge of Mephibosheth's estate, and he joined um, David on the road, and David gave him Mephibosheth's um, lands at that time. And we're going to learn that why that was a mistake. And we're going to see how that misplaced compassion causes problems. So David has the, this ongoing history 
of showing compassion to the wrong ones. The people who are loyal to him and really risk something to be on his side often get overlooked. But the people that David's trying to win over kind of become the object of his obsession. He's willing to risk more for them. So anyway, verse six, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you, where you've made it clear today the com- that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive all of us, and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. So, you know, Joab gives David that, that sharp reality check. He's not holding anything back. Um, you know, David is grieving the man who publicly humiliated him. He attacked his city, his home. He plotted with other men who, who wanted to kill David. And now David's saying, I wish I had died instead. I, I would gladly give my life for this guy. And so this public mourning was a, a public insult to everyone who had supported David. And this mourning also actually would put David's life, put the lives of David's supporters at risk. Now, I felt like the ESV was a little soft here in this translation. Uh, Joab's not a soft guy. I mean, he's not the cuddly type. He's, he's the kind of person who's going to, to make sure you understand exactly what he's saying. So I actually prefer Alter's translation. Surprise, surprise. He says, for you have said today that you have no commanders and servants. And so basically, they may as well not even exist. They're dead. You know, that Joab really wants to twist the knife here with these words. Yeah. Because he's, he's got to get David back to reality. And he basically is accusing David of wishing that the servants and the commanders of his army, which would include Joab, were dead. And yeah. well, and it, it, I mean, and this is, I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but this is one of those areas where, you know, we see people do this all the time. We choose bad relationships over friends and family who genuinely care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take that even a step further, you know, we have people staying in bad relationships when they, uh, you know, should be moving on and doing kingdom work. You know, that's... I honestly didn't go there, but, you know, that's a really good analogy. Because it's... it's... Yeah, I mean, that that's when I look at it, I'm like, that, that to me seems like some application is that, you know, we, we oftentimes attach ourselves to people who are not good for us you know, friends, whether it be friends or, and I'm not saying that you can't be friends with people, but I, I, and you know, but you need to make sure that whenever you're, you're in a relationship with someone who has certain personality traits, that you're not prioritizing them over the good that you're supposed to be doing. Or even your own identity. You know, let, I mean, let's take it, because I mean, that is one of the things that people who are abusers and I don't want to get too far afield on this because I can go on all day. Uh, but people who are abusers, the first thing they do is try to make you forget who you are. They, they try to undermine what you know to be true about yourself. And so, you know, and David had some flaws. Don't get me wrong. I think we, we've been pretty open with uh, what David's done wrong and why Absalom really kind of had a right to be upset about the things his father did and did not do. And so... David, with his flaws, had kind of created enough of a doubt within himself that he felt like he didn't have a right. And I, I believe this, is, and this might be me reading in, but I believe like 
he did not feel like he had a right to address what Amnon did because it was so closely mirrored what he did with Ashiva. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times that's the, that's the crack in the identity that the, an abuser will use to just boast, <laughs> burst right through who you think you are. If you've got that little flaw, you did something wrong. And I'm not saying David Bathsheba was a little flaw. Don't get me wrong. But that any mistake you make is, see, you aren't perfect. See, you aren't good enough. See, this is why you can't be who you said you are. And that's what abusers do. And that's what Absalom shows himself to be, ultimately, is an abuser. And so the sense of out- righteous outrage, which, by the way, is also very common with abusers, uh, we find that it, there's, no, there's no basis for it. There's no grounding for it because the moment he gets some kind of power, he becomes worse than David. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, kind of watch, watch people um, who, who get upset about, you know, this, this moral outrage over what everybody else is doing. When you start to hear that kind of rhetoric, you can pretty much guarantee that at some point they're going to cross the line into abuse, uh, especially when it's just constant, constant, constant. Um, so, uh, I would recommend the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So, um, just check that, 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 uh, podcast, uh, no affiliation, but it really reveals some good things. Well, not good things, but (laughs) well, it it brings some things to light. And, um, one of the things that, and I'm not to, not that I feel like we have to defend that recommendation, but I have seen some pastors saying that, you know, Christians shouldn't be listening to that because all it does is is exploit tragedy for entertainment. And I, and I'm going. It's kind of insulting uh, for you to think that people are listening to that largely to be entertained. Um, because so it's it's not something I would choose to listen to for entertainment. To be honest. <laughs> so when people read the story of David Bathsheba, are they doing it just to be entertained? Well, that's, I mean, that, that's a good question to, to ask in, in response, but I, I'm just saying it's, it's yeah. not something that, I mean, any, I don't think any sane person listens to this and goes, oh, that's entertaining. No, it's, well, it's, there, there are things that happen that, that I think have become too commonplace in the church. And, you know, I. Exposing I, I did, evil is not being divisive. Let's just be, right. <laughs> let's just be clear right. on that. It, it, well, and that's. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and I find it kind of interesting that you know, for years and years, we had pastors preaching about the the dangers of the internet and how evil the internet is, and now it's being used to expose a lot of evil that's been covered up. And I'm not saying this happens in every church. There are good, healthy churches in the world. There's not a there's not one that's problem free. There's not one that's flawless because mm-hmm. people are involved. Um, but we, I attend one sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, but there are healthy churches where there are not abusive things going on. Are there churches where people get their feelings hurt? Absolutely. Are there churches where there are going to be disagreements? Absolutely. Um, But we've got to watch and make sure we're not going, uh, going along with people who are exploiting those things for their own personal gain and their own abusive tendencies. Well, you know, you actually, you bring up a really good point because we talked about, um, you know, the internet being bashed and I know, this, uh, okay, just a rabbit hole, we fell down again. But the, the um, one of the, the traits of an abuser is they cut off means of communication 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when you when you go to a church that says, oh, well, you shouldn't be on Facebook because it's just full of evil and sin. Um, really? Do they know what Facebook's about? And do, you know, and how much use would Paul have gotten out of Facebook? Now, I'm not saying it's without its problems. And Facebook is exactly what you make it. Um, so if you want, want it filled with evil and sin, follow people who, who post evil and sin. Uh, you want a bunch of Bible verses? Follow people who post uh, Bible verses. I, you can make it what you want, is my point. Um, we got pastors saying, oh, women's ministries are evil because all women do is whine and complain about each other and it's going to cause division in your church. Um, yeah, that's another abusive posture. Anytime we start breaking people away from community and saying you shouldn't communicate with different parts of the body, different people within the Christian community even, or even people outside because it's divisive or it's going to cause problems. Yeah, or saying you shouldn't be informed about certain things. Yeah, don't research that. Don't look at that. Don't. There's an issue there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that, those are basic hallmarks of abusive behavior. So this is the reason, one of the reasons why when we do stuff like this and I talk to people, it's like, research, check me out. Ask other people about it. I don't need to be hidden away. And, and protected from the sunlight. And right. if I'm wrong, I need to figure that out. Right. So and, and, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, and we, yeah. And we're not afraid of being corrected. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. I don't like it. I, I'll be honest. Yeah. No one really cares for it much <laughs> um, at the beginning, but you know, afterwards I do kind of go, Oh yeah, I guess that was kind of a silly thing to believe and or say. Um, <laughs> and then I move yeah. on with my life. I, I, you know, I, I get corrected. I, adjust course and I go the, you know, the right way. Well, you know, <laughs> I try Christ... to anyway. I don't know. It's not always perfect. Well, you know, if you look at the Great Commission and it talks about, you know, going into all the world, these are good things. Uh, you know, it got, Jesus didn't say, don't talk to people. Don't, don't help. Don't reach out. Um, don't seek help for yourself. Uh, these are things that are not in the Bible. These are things that people have constructed to protect the Bible. And guess what? The Bible doesn't need protecting. Anyway. Verse seven. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. Well, it, it's like, it's like certain, like, okay. So Dr. Heiser, uh, we reference him a lot. And this kind of is the opposite of what you're saying. The Bible doesn't need protecting is that he's, he often says we don't need protection from our Bible. And oftentimes when he starts talking about the divine counsel things and this and that and the other, and people say, oh, well, this is, you're just, you're just handing people really deep theology that they're not ready for, and, and they accuse him of, of being like a, an irresponsible arms dealer. And he goes, yes, I am a content arms dealer. I am handing people <laughs> spiritual weaponry to fight spiritual battles, and I'm not ashamed of that. He's like, you're not, you are not going to be harmed by understanding the text properly, regardless of, of where it comes from, regardless of its mm-hmm. original context. You're not going to be harmed by that if you're following the text and trusting God. So. Um, Anyway, that I, I love that quote, uh, but it was kind of kind of the opposite of what you were saying. The Bible doesn't need to pre- be protected. We don't need to be protected from the Bible. It's funny how that works both ways. I mean, it's like God designed this amazing system that just flows. Yeah, yeah. the the only thing that would need to be protected from your Bible is if you have something you're fostering that you don't want to lose, um, that the Bible might teach against. Um, but that's that. Uh, we should probably move on. <laughs> I think we're tra- treading up to that that snarky line that we get to sometimes. So yeah, anyway. yeah. Back to the text. We've verse I don't seven. even know where got, it is right now. We've got one time for one more verse. It says, 
Now, therefore, arise, go out, still Joab talking to David, speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So Joab is making a plain, bold, dangerous threat. There, is, This guy is pulling no punches. If you don't go out there, I am going to use my position as the general, as the leader of your armies to, to stage a coup. I'm going to make sure everyone leaves you. And, you know, he knows that he's got some teeth. This isn't just some guy talking. And he's not just making some idle threat. He knows what he can do because he already demonstrated this. We've talked about Rabbah. Joab had actually had to go out of his way to protect David's reputation and make sure that his own reputation didn't exceed David. So that's evidence, that's proof right there. Joab had the ability to carry out and fulfill this threat. You know, the writer of Chronicles even hints at how great Joab was because it leaves out some of the details about Joab. Mm. And they don't want to make Joab look better than David. David always has to be the hero in Chronicles. And so, um, you know, the fact that Joab was even capable of ordering Uriah and all the other men, because more than Uriah was killed uh, at Rabbah, into a life-threatening situation, and they didn't even question it, tells you how much loyalty inspired in his troop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of hints at the stature of Joab within the community. And the fact that he could get 10 men to violate David's direct command not to hurt Absalom, that tells you something else right there. The men were willing to obey Joab above David, to put Mm -hmm. the general's word above the king. And so Joab is, again, not an empty threat. He knows he has the power and the capability to make this happen, and that some of the men would actually probably be very much in favor of it. Why? Because Joab's still out on the field. He's still part of their lives. He's sleeping with them. He's eating with them. He's you know traveling those hard roads. He's fighting alongside. He's bleeding with them. David's in a castle. Mm-hmm. David's in a palace. He's worried about politics. He's got time to have affairs. Joab is down to business. He's taking care of what needs to be done so David can remain in that palace. People aren't blind. And especially not in this point in time. There's no, there's no propaganda machine at this point in time. There, there's no, uh, you know, carefully organized political campaigns at this time. You either could win or you couldn't. And right. so Joab was the one who made David able to win. And yeah. so campaigns were a little different. It wasn't about getting more votes. It was about killing the other people. Saved, yeah, this is saved much recounting. It was a military campaign. That's where we get the word. It, yeah, there was no, <laughs> you didn't have to recount when the other guys were just dead. Yeah. And so, and what, what's interesting is David listened. David doesn't argue with Joab. You would expect the king to go, how dare you talk to me this way, and, and kick him out on his ear. David doesn't do that. And so you kind of have to wonder how much, did David kind of hear what Joab had to say? Because David's not unaware of what Joab is, is capable of. Because all the, the evidence seems to suggest that Joab was with David from the time that, that he started running from Saul. Mm-hmm. From that point when he took the showbread and he got Goliath's uh, um, 
plaid sword. sword. Thank you. Yes. And, you know, so Joab would have fought with the Philistines at Keilah. He would have been a part of that campaign, literally. Um, he would have fought the Amalekites at Ziklag. Uh, he would have defeated the Moabites, Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, all with David. Joab would have been there. And so every military success that David had experienced really hinged on Joab's ability and his own merit as a warrior. David wasn't winning these battles alone. Joab was right there by, him, by his side. So I, I think it's really telling that Joab thought in this moment that he could actually step in, but he doesn't. He gives David a chance to redeem himself in the eyes of the people, and he tells David how to do it. So that, I mean, and David listens. Now, this is going to have some, some fallout later on in the story, and um, we're going to talk about what that may be and how it's presented as the, the story progresses. But for now, in this moment, Joab really does save David and his position in the kingdom when he could have just, I mean, snap of his fingers and it could have all been gone and probably could have happened pretty bloodlessly because David wouldn't have had an army to challenge Joab at all. So when Joab says, hey, this is going to be worse than anything you've had since the, from your youth until now, Joab knew exactly what he was talking about. He had a pretty good gauge to to measure that by. So um, I think probably let's put a semicolon there and we'll come back to the story next week. And yeah. see what else we can get ourselves in trouble with. Um, I'm being good. I don't know what you're talking about. I, th I think we, I think we, we, uh, we did pretty good. Um, but yeah. We'll we'll pause there and and come pick up when, with the rest of the story and that's a, that's actually about where I stopped reading last time so that works out <laughs> works <perfectly>. out well <laughs> uh, for me so I get to read ahead now and see what happens next we encourage everyone at home do the same um, that way you can kind of figure out what we're trying to talk about um, and if you want to be part of the conversation hit us up on Raven Creek SC um, actually uh, before I do full sign off I do want to mention this. Next week's Thanksgiving, we still haven't decided. It kind of depends on how busy next week gets and if Emily's able to get enough notes going on. Um, we might uh, do something we have not done yet, and that is just we might skip the holiday weekend. Um, we'll let you know. So next week will be a surprise. <laughs> we might be back next Monday. We might not. If we are not, we'll see you the one after that. And uh, But if you want to be a part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com is the website where you can find us, you can contact um, or Raven Creek SC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, pretty much all the social media, you can find us there. And uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing you. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.